The following talk was given at the Sati Center for Buddhist Studies in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at sati.org. There, there was a question in the chat that I think is uh, worth addressing, and it does somewhat lead to my next topic. So I don't know if Patricia is still there on the uh, Zoom, but oh yeah, there, there's her. Uh, there you are. Hi. Um, so she says, I have a hard time getting in touch with loving kindness and accepting loving kindness. Do you just keep practicing it until it flows? I have tried starting with a kitten and easy things. Yeah, uh, which is, I think, uh, a very skillful approach. I think it's Ajahn Brahm who says, like, that's the best way to practice. But anyway, um, first of all, I think... Uh, this is one of the one of the points that I address in my book uh, that I haven't really brought up that much today, but I think we can get too much into the idea of loving kindness as a feeling, which that's an element of it, and it's not to be d- dismissed, but that feeling isn't always going to be there, and when we get into a struggle like, oh, I should be feeling this or I want to be feeling this, then we're essentially saying the way I feel right now isn't okay. I need to feel some other way. So we're, first of all, we're then in conflict with reality. This is how it is right now. Now you can cultivate it. You can try to change the way you feel, you know, if you do that in in a non-aggressive way, if you do that in a gentle and, you know, inclining toward that, that's lovely. And that's part of what we're doing with the practice. But that, that inclination or that cultivation will either work or it won't. (laughs) And if it doesn't, and we set this as a standard then it's like, well, I'm not practicing loving kindness. Whereas if we go back and look at some of the points I've made earlier, well, if you are harmonizing with the people you live with, (laughs) then you're acting out of loving kindness. If you are practicing the precepts, just as I said about making yourself not be a foe, right, The, the, the first sutta, then you are practicing loving kindness. Bhikkhu Analyo, one of the great modern scholars of Buddhism, says that if you are practicing uh, the precepts, if you are being non-harming in your life, that is inherently an act of compassion for the world. You know, because what, what creates harm in this world? People, violence, Greed, you know, uh, sexual harm, lying, intoxication. So that's the five <laughs> opposites of the precepts, right? If you're not doing those things, you're already contributing something peaceful to the world. You're another person who is bringing calm and non-harming into the world. So. I like to think of my loving-kindness practice as having these different dimensions. 
I try to cultivate the feeling. But what do I know about feelings? Number one, they are impermanent. So I'm not going to be able to, no matter how much, I've had incredible experiences. When my daughter was like four, and I went on retreat and did loving kindness practice, it was huge, because I would just think of her. And my mind would, would explode, my heart would explode. She's 25 now. doesn't work. I've tried it. I, I mean, you know, it's not my fault, man. It's just, you know, I think of her. I love her. And that it doesn't explode in the same way. It's just a feeling, right? It's a beautiful feeling. But really, loving kindness is more about, I think, to me, it's, it's not so much about a feeling. Again, we can get very attached to feelings, but it's more about how we live and how we view the world. Do we view the world through this lens of anger, you know, judgment, or through a lens of compassion and kindness? You know, are we able to see, even in our enemy, the suffering and feel compassion for them. You know, uh, people have objected, particularly non-Buddhist people, when I say I have compassion for billionaires. You know, they say, how can you have compassion for billionaires? They're ruining the world. I agree. I don't believe there should be billionaires. But since there are, <laughs> what I see is that to become a billionaire, you have to be driven by so much greed that you are inevitably caught in dukkha. And your life is about protecting this, these billions. And so you're suffering. So I understand. I have compassion for you. And I want you to give that money away right now. And th- that will free you, by the way. But so, so this is just one sort of example of how we want to, you know, what, what this practice is meant to do. It's meant to give us insight and wisdom that frees the heart. And again, I think that, and one of the reasons I wrote this book, a, a significant reason, is that I felt that the practice of loving kindness has become a feel-good practice that people think, oh, I'm going to do this meditation and then I'm just going to be happy. I'm going to love it. It's going to be, you know, I have too much anger. I'll get rid of it by meditating on loving kindness. And then my life is good. Good luck. Like we all have anger. You know, it's just human. It's okay. Have compassion for your anger. (laughs) Don't have resentment to your anger. That's just doubling the anger, right? So, so it's, and in the meantime, yes, continue to do the practice Cultivate, you know, try using the phrases, see what happens. You know, it's, it's quite telling to me when I meditate and work with loving kindness, when I try to do it, the results give me information about what my current state is. Like, where, where am I at right now? Oh, right now my heart's really open, it's lovely. Oh, right now, my heart's kind of closed. Okay, well, maybe I'll, I'll try to work with that, but 
not be in a battle with myself. You know, just the 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 first starting point is always this is how it is, and whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. Uh, I need to accept this. Start the starting point is acceptance. Acceptance doesn't mean passivity. It doesn't mean apathy. It doesn't mean well this is how it is. There's nothing I can do about it. It means this is how it is. This is where I'm starting from. How can I move into skillful, a skillful state without creating harm? And that's the tricky thing, right? It's when we see, oh, I really do need to change. And, I, and I've really got some stuff that needs to be worked on. That's, that's, we need to see that, right? And yeah, we need to do something about it. But if you say, you know, I'm overweight. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to stop eating. Well, yeah, I mean, maybe for a day or two, but that's not going to work. You know, I'm really out of shape. I'm going to go to the gym for eight hours. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, that's, that's violence to ourselves, right? We have to do this skillfully and wisely and, and carefully. So I hope that's of some help. Thanks. <laughs> I got thumbs up. All right. So we're going to go on to the next sutta, one of my favorites. And, and yes, Raghu. Yeah, yeah, hi. Hello. It's good. Yeah. yeah. There you go. All right. I, I love your comment about not making this a feel-good exercise <laughs> and really getting into, you know, having value in, in daily life. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the elements of the practice uh, in terms of uh, cultivating loving-kindness, it, it reminds me of one of the quotes of the Buddha which is whatever the mind frequently ponders about becomes the inclination of the mind. I've always thought of it something like, you know, brainwashing yourself. Mm. Can you comment on that? Say say the question again. Uh, I've always thought of this as brainwashing yourself. You always thought of it as brainwashing? Yeah, because... Whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon? Yeah. Uh, So you're saying we we sort of brainwash ourselves by by thinking about the same things over and over? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, that's a a good way of characterizing it. Um, and, and that's why mindfulness of thoughts is so important, is to see, what, what do I keep thinking about? Or why do I keep thinking about this? I mean, you know, you can get so obsessed in our current, you know, and, and now extended political, um, I don't know what to call it, Situation. We'll put put it in neutral terms. We can get so caught in frustration and anger, uh, you know, because maybe you just want to be informed and educated, and then you get so, uh, I mean, that you wind up, here you are, your intention is something good, but then you wind up angry all the time, right? Uh, so, yeah, it's really important to 
to notice what are the obsessions of the mind and what are they, what are they doing. And, and it's another reason why, I mean, you know, I, I remember on the, I was on a retreat a long time ago, one of my first long retreats, and we did chanting every day. And when, when I started the retreat, because I'm a musician, I kept hearing songs in my mind, right? And then about halfway through the retreat, gradually the songs faded away and the chants took over. So, so now I'm chanting these positive things, right? And they just, so that was, it, uh, it was positive brainwashing, right? I, I actually, I've written, uh, I have a song that I've, I have an album called Laughing Buddha, and I, I, I wrote, uh, I put the, the metta sutta to music. And people have told me that by listening to that, now they start to sing the metta sutta phrases to themselves. And they catch themselves radiating kindness over the entire world. They're like, oh, this is really good to have this in my mind. Instead of, you know, the other kind of lyrics that you might happen to be listening to. So, yeah, I I mean, it's a really important piece is to see see what those tendencies are. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I can see the value of cultivating the habit of uh, loving kindness because that's much better than the three roots of, you know, greed, yeah. aversion, and delusion. Yeah, yeah, and again, it's not something you can force. Uh, uh, because as we talked about before, the conditioning, the, the other the tendencies of the mind are still going to arise. And if we take a hostile attitude towards them, then we're, that's, what, that's what we're creating, hostility in the mind. So it's a very delicate process. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Hi, this is uh, Jim. Just a quick uh, comment. As you were talking earlier, and we are talking about kind of accepting what our thoughts are or what is actually happening at any given moment, what I was left with, what you said, <clears throat> left me with uh, acceptance doesn't mean approval. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And and forgiveness doesn't mean condoning, which is something Jack Cornfield says in his his forgiveness meditation. You know, uh, again, these are subtle places that we have to work with because it's very easy to get these spiritual messages. This is the way you're supposed to be. You know, this is good. This is bad. And then we and we and then we realize we backed ourselves into a corner. Like, oh wait. <laughs> If I'm forgiving you and you murdered somebody, does that mean I don't think you should be punished? No, that's a different question. That's a legal question, you know. And 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 yeah, acceptance. I mean, this this to me is why the Buddhist path is more challenging than one that's more fundamentalist. You know, if someone just tells you this is right, this is wrong. Okay, those are the rules. Great. But the Dharma says you have to really examine all the nuances and all the sides of any question so that acceptance becomes, oh, acceptance is helping me to not be in conflict, in internal conflict with the way things are. And now, that's not, 
But that is not the end of the process. That's the beginning of the process. Because I can't get into engaged in a process of change without acceptance. If I start a process of change in conflict with reality, then I'm just automatically in turmoil. So the challenge is, can I just say, this is how it is. I don't like it. I would like it to change, but let me just breathe with it and see if some clarity about how to respond will arise. Trusting in mindfulness rather than I need to control this by my standards of right and wrong. It's like, uh, no, that doesn't work so well. Yeah. Very helpful. Thanks. Thanks. Um, so, all right, I'm taking you into the simile of the saw. So you really, I gave you guys like, I think just the, the climax of the, the simile of the saw. Oh, no, I gave you that, oh, that wonderful, uh, yeah. But I, w- I want to take you through this again as a kind of narrative. Uh, this is, and, and the, but the, the big picture of this sutta, and again goes along with my project here, is to see that one of the aspects of loving kindness is non-ill will. So this is, you see this in the sutta, in the, in the metta sutta, but it, it's, uh, I want you to first consider the difference between the idea of try to practice non-ill will towards everything or try to love everything. And you can see how trying to love everything can sort of present some challenges that are like, oh, I don't know if I can love that. But then asking yourself, well, can I just not hate it? This is, uh, which I, to me, becomes a more manageable thing with things, with issues that are, you know, or with people, or especially, you know, that are troubling and challenging. If I just, if I just set up the goal as just don't hate. So this is, points to one of the ways that the Buddha taught, which is very interesting. Many of his teachings were about not doing things or not relating to things. We talk about not self. You know, he doesn't provide some alternative to self. He just says, form is not self, feeling is not self, perception is not self, mental formations are not self, consciousness is not self. And he says, you know, practice non-ill will, as you'll see in this sutta. So why would he use this kind of language? Why not just say, just practice love for all beings? Which he does say at times, but why this alternative? So this is it's a rhetorical question, uh, which I'm going to attempt to give an answer. When we see... Look at the Four Noble Truths. So if you're not familiar with the Four Noble Truths, they are the truth that there is an unsatisfactory quality and painful quality to many experiences in life. That That's the first truth, that there is suffering. That there is a cause to suffering, which is grasping and aversion, clinging, 
that suffering will end if we stop that grasping and aversion and clinging, and that there's a path, the Eightfold Path, to end that grasping. So back to number two. (laughs) Suffering is caused by grasping, by clinging, by thirst is the literal term. Well, if if he says to you, you should love everybody, then you start trying to love people and there's a grasping after a feeling. We were just talking about that problem of trying to get the feeling, right? I'm supposed to be more loving. I need to cultivate love. Well, what if we just flip it and say, no, just let go, non-clinging. That's the the way to freedom, right? Non-clinging, non-grasping, non-hatred. And that becomes very logical, not self, non-attachment. We see these terms come up all the time. So he's, the, the interesting thing is that his teaching, like his, his rhetorical technique of speaking in the negative mirrors the teaching itself, which is in some sense, we can say a negative teaching. That is, it's about letting go. It's not a, the, the path isn't about acquiring something. It's about letting go of something, of some things. Greed, hatred, and delusion would be the shorthand. So this, you know, I just find that intriguing that, and helpful, ultimately, for myself, that I don't always have to just feel all this flow of love for everybody. If I'm just not walking around projecting resentments, judgments, anger, and when I, that happens, if I can just let go of those feelings, that that is practicing loving kindness. Oh, so I get a gold star without having to have like the big, you know, aura, the, the rainbow over my head, you know. All right. So let me take you through this very fun sutta. Uh, um, <laughs> so it, it starts uh, with a, a story about a monk named Molia Faguna. And I just find that name funny. So that's me. Molia Faguna was associating over much with bhikkhunis. Now, bhikkhu is monk, bhikkhuni is a nun. So Molia Faguna, who was a monk, was spending too much time with the nuns. This is not what you're supposed to do. So word goes out, the word gets back to the Buddha. So the Buddha calls to Molia Faguna, says, I don't know if he called him, I think he calls him Faguna. I'm not sure what's... uh, Anyway. It sounds like some kind of an Italian insult to me, you know. Ah, Faguna already, you know. All right, I'm glad to get a laugh. (laughs) So, he says, uh, is it true that you are associating so much with the Vakunis? And Faguna wisely says, yes, venerable sir. And the Buddha says, oops. Faguna, are you not a clansman who has gone forth out of faith from the home life into homelessness? Yes, venerable sir. Faguna, it is not proper for you, a clansman gone forth out of faith from the home life into homelessness, to associate overmuch with bhikkhunis. 
Therefore, if anyone speaks dispraise of those bhikkhunis in your presence, you should abandon any desires and any thoughts based on the household life, and herein you should train thus. My mind will be unaffected, and I shall utter no evil words. I shall abide compassionate for his welfare with a mind of loving kindness without inner hate. This is how you should train Fuguna. So, it's a well, let me read the next paragraph because it, the plot thickens, as they say. If anyone gives those bhikkhunis a blow with his hand, with a clod, with a stick, or with a knife in your presence, you should abandon any desires and any thoughts based on the household life. So based on the household life means thinking about giving up being a monk and going back to being a lay person. And herein you should train thus, my mind will remain unaffected, etc., so this is a pretty shocking to me teaching, saying even if someone's attacking these nuns, no, no thought of ill will should arise in your mind. You know, you shouldn't. And, and when, when I was writing about this, I, I went and met with Ajahn Pasano, who's a senior monk in the Thai forest tradition. And I said, you know, this seems like is this okay? Like, should he be just letting people do this stuff? And Ajahn Pasno was very wise. Like, be careful how you read this. He's not saying don't do anything. He's saying don't act out of hatred. Don't get caught in hatred. So it's the mental teaching. And, and Pasno also said, this is meant to get your attention. It's not so much like, okay, this is how you should live your life. You know, but in terms of, you know, if there's violence going on, you know, because nobody is actually attacking the nuns. It really, really all that was going on was that people would, were talking, <laughs> right? And, and Molia Faguna was getting angry with people who said things about the nuns. And the nuns were saying, getting angry with people who said things about Molia Faguna. But the Buddha is saying, you know, just, you know, if anyone speaks dispraise in your presence, you should abandon any desires and thoughts based on the household life. And you should think thus, my mind will be unaffected. I shall utter no evil words. Right? You see how it's all in negative language? (laughs) My mind is unaffected. There are no evil words. I shall abide compassionate for their welfare, the mind of loving kindness. Okay, that's the cultivating uh, without inner hate. The bad news, which is not in the sutta, is that eventually Molia did uh, uh, return to the household life. So, I mean, it's bad news, in, you know, <laughs> from the Buddhist standpoint. So. Uh, this sutta continues. It's it's got uh, several different sections, and it's probably something that was all sort of lumped together. Uh, but it's because it's all in the same theme. But it, but it's got for me like you could almost make like a a TV series about this sutta. <laughs> like you could have the characters because Molly Faguna is a great character, and plus he's got the name. So the next thing the Buddha starts to talk about is how back in the day, 
I could tell the monks what to do and they would just do it. But these days, <laughs> the monks, eh, they don't behave quite like, you know, and it's, it's funny, you get these little insights into the Buddha's life and his experience. You realize, you know, he was, he had his enlightenment experience at the age of 35. He, he taught until he was 80, until he died at 80. So 45 years, and in the beginning there were five, he had five followers, and by the end there were thousands. And what, what happened is young men would come like, oh, this is like the, the hot thing to do. This is the big guru, let's go follow him. But they would show up and they would have no discipline and they, you know, they wouldn't really follow the rules and they'd be screwing around and you know, arguing about what was going on in the bathroom. And, you know, and, and he gets frustrated. You know, I mean, it, don't, I don't want to get in trouble. I'm not speaking ill will of the monk, of the Buddha. But, or unkindly about the Buddha, but it's just you see that it was really challenging. Like he didn't have like an easy time. It was really challenging. So uh, he, he then, t- so now he tells us a story. He says, um, in this same Savati, which uh, he's in Savati when he, gives this talk right there was a housewife named Vedahika and a good report about Mr. Vedahika had spread thus Mr. Vedahika is gentle is meek is peaceful now Mr. Vedahika had a maid named Kali who was clever nimble and neat in her work the maid Kali thought a good report about my lady has spread thus but how is it now? Well, she does not show anger. Is it nevertheless actually present in her, or is it absent? Or else is it just because of my work is neat that my lady shows no anger? So she suppose I test my lady. So this is a very again like a very odd little story. So there's this you know woman and her maid. And the woman has a good reputation as being nice. And the maid's like, yeah, she's nice, but is she really nice? Like, is there, let's find out. What happens if I push her buttons a little bit? I think underneath, what the implication, I think underneath there, there might be some uh, thing, something that isn't so nice. So the maid colleague got up later in the day. (laughs) Then Mistress Vedahika said, hey, Kali. What is it, madam? What is the matter that you get up later in the day? Nothing is the matter, madam. Nothing is the matter, matter, you wicked girl. Yet you get up later in the day. And she was angry and displeased, and she spoke words with, of displeasure. Then the maid Kali thought, the fact is that while my lady does not show anger, it is actually present in her, not absent. It is just because my work is neat, etc. Suppose I test my lady a little more. <laughs> so the maid Kali got up still later in the day, and etc. Uh, what is it? What is the matter that you get up still later in the day? Nothing is a matter. Nothing is a matter, you wicked girl. Yet you get up still later in the day, and she was angry and displeased, and she took a rolling pin, gave a blow to her head, to the head of Kali, and cut her head. Well, this sounds like some old sitcom to me. She takes a rolling pin, and she whacks the lid. <laughs> But it's also kind of like, well, you could hurt somebody. 
Then the maid Kali, with blood running from her cut head, denounced her mistress to the neighbors. See, ladies, the gentle ladies work. See, ladies, the meek ladies work. How can she become angry and displeased with her only maid for getting up late? How can she take a rolling pin and give a blow in the head? So, Mistress Vedahika is rough. She's violent. Mistress Vedahika is merciless. I'm sorry. I, I just, I get so caught up in like, this is just such a bizarre story that we'll get to the, the meaning of it. I, I will, not that you don't see it already, but. Uh, but the Buddha expands on what this is about. But Bhikkhu Bodhi uh, mentioned he's the translator of this, and, and he gives he has talks that you can find online where he goes through these the different suttas. And on this sutta, one of the things, he stops and goes, you know, I'm not sure, that, like, Mistress Kali really has an argument here. Like, she's kind of like, asking for, I mean, she's not suggesting that she should be hit in the head with a rolling pin, but he's like, I can't really side with her 100% here. Like, she is kind of misbehaving, you know, getting up later and later in the day. So, what the Buddhist point, the the point he makes here is, uh, try to stay with me, and I'll try to stay, you know, make sense, is that some of these younger monks that are coming along who aren't that disciplined, they're easy to get along with as long as they're getting their food and their robes and their medicine, what are called the requisites, a nice place to sleep or a place to sleep. But if they're not getting all that stuff, then they're like Mistress Vedahika and they start to complain they aren't really happy you know but and he's like no no matter whether you're getting everything that you want or not you need to remain you know uh, compassionate you know you should abide compassionate for their welfare with the mind of loving kindness without inner hate so it's a it's a really strange like long way around to get to this point of like don't let well it, it, it here's the other piece of it he says if people speak to you uh dip, 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 dip. you know what I, I got that wrong yeah no he mentions okay i'm sorry cuz it's it like it's got a couple of little tools he says i do he says so some bhikkhus are extremely gentle, meek, peaceful, so long as disagreeable courses of speech do not touch them. So he goes into the requisites, but, but this is really what it's about, so forgive me for getting lost on that. He's saying that, that the, if someone admonishes them, then they get angry, you know, and that you should you know, need to be, you know, accepting of that. He says, a monk should be easy to admonish. So he says, when others address you, their speech may be spoken with loving kindness or with inner hate. However, you should train thus, no matter what. Our minds will remain unaffected. We shall utter no evil words. 
We shall abide compassion for their welfare with a mind of loving kindness without inner hate. We shall abide pervading that person with a mind imbued with loving kindness. And starting with him, we shall abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with loving kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. This is how you should train bhikkhus. So I want to step out now to talk about how the the Buddha is teaching meditation because he's just given us instruction on how to practice loving kindness. And it's not by repeating phrases, right? It's by pervading that person or pervading ourselves with a mind imbued with loving kindness, pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with loving kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. So we'll see this same idea in the Metta Sutta, which is that, and, and it's captured in the phrase that I used early in the day, radiating kindness over the entire world. So this is a shift in terms of how we practice loving kindness. And it, it is more of a felt experience than a verbal one. It's one where we, we try to cultivate and uh, arouse a certain feeling of loving kindness, but we can also just do it visually, that we just imagine that we are filled with loving kindness. And then we imagine that this is radiating out from our bodies. So upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded. So as I said early in the day, (coughs) you can practice this by trying to infuse your whole body from head to toe and out to the limbs with loving kindness and then imagine that it is radiating out from your body. Now he says pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with loving kindness. So again, this is like using the imagination. This is one of the aspects of loving kindness practice, right? We're not, it's not just being aware of something that's happening, the breath. You're actually trying to imagine that, that the world was filled with love or that the, all, the, all beings were touched with loving kindness, that you were filling people with loving kindness. That, and, and so there are different ways to imagine this. Uh, the, the German Buddhist nun, Ayakema, would teach this uh, she, in many different visual ways. One of them was a golden beam of light that she suggested that you imagine radiating golden light from your heart out into the world. So you would radiate it to everybody in this room, and then you would see it radiating out into this neighborhood, and then out across the state and you know across around the world. So again, using the imagination to visualize something. One of my, one of her teachers, one of her students, used the image of a lake. And the lake is just a lake filled with loving kindness. And you invite people into the lake. So you imagine that people are coming into the lake. And first you see your friends and your family and your loved ones. And then you start to see your neighbors and, and then your enemies and then all beings. And it's this lake just expands 
to be large enough to hold all beings. So diff- different ways of imagining, but it's always about this expansive quality, and that's very much how the Buddha describes loving kindness, this all-pervading quality. It's not just I'm thinking this and saying these phrases, but it's really imagining and letting the mind be vast and spacious, filling the universe with loving kindness. So I see that uh, my slow path through here has uh, used up a lot of time, so uh, there is uh, another set of images here that I'm going to have to forego. Uh, 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 let me see if I can summarize them. So basically the Buddha now says that your loving kindness, he tries to take, he takes these different images that, that are about trying to have vast and unmovable loving kindness. So he starts with a, an image of the earth and he says, uh, this great earth is deep and immeasurable. It is not easy well, to make it be without earth. In other words, you can't dig up the earth. It's just always going to be there. So we should, our, basically our loving kindness should be as vast and immovable as the earth. And then he says the same thing about space. space. Like we sh- our loving kindness should be as vast as space. And and as you know, it's interesting because obviously the Buddha didn't have the idea of air pollution, but it, because he gives he sort of suggests that 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 space can't be colored, it, you can't kind of pollute it. <laughs> we know otherwise now. Um, he gives the image of the Ganges or of, of a vast body of water. You can't burn it up. So, uh, again, like a good image for your meditation is like the vastness of the oceans. My my meditation, my loving kindness should be vast like the ocean. But finally, we come to this famous uh, line which gives the sutta its title. So after all these different images, Molya Faguna, don't get, you know, get in conflict around the nuns. You know, don't be like Mistress Vedahika that your, your maid's laziness can trigger you into rage. You know, don't be like a monk that can't take a little bit of criticism. You know, all, all these images. Finally, he says, it's all about the same thing. Cause he says, bhikkhus, even if bandits were to sever you savagely limb by limb with a two-handled saw, he who gave rise to a mind of hate toward them would not be carrying out my teaching. Herein, bhikkhus, you should train thus. Our minds will remain unaffected, and we shall utter no evil words. We shall abide compassion for their welfare with a mind of loving kindness without inner hate. We shall abide pervading them with a mind imbued with loving kindness. And starting with them, we shall abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with loving kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. That is how you should train. So this idea that if we're going to carry out his teachings, we can't let a thought of ill will arise if somebody is sawing off our limbs. 
kind of like, let's set the bar a little higher, you know. And, and of course, it's not, you know, in our ordinary lives, not a situation we would have to deal with, although people do deal with horrifying experiences, torture, cruelty, violence. But it really speaks to the Buddha's devotion to non-harming, you know, and his, his demand that we see clearly that any, uh, you know, that anger or hatred in any form for any reason will only harm us. And he's really challenging us to see for ourselves what happens when we allow our mind to become filled with anger and hatred. Hopefully, we shall never have to face that particular challenge. So, uh, so I want to. Um, <laughs> I want to get through the Metta Sutta with you, but I think it would be good to just take. Let's take like a. Let's sit for a few a few minutes and just settle back down. I feel like we've been talking and doing other things for a while. Just have a, a quiet sit for about 10 minutes and then we'll, we'll finish the day with the Metta Sutta. All right, so you, want, you can maybe look, turn over your uh, handout to see the Discourse on Loving-Kindness. usually called the Metta Sutta, or the Buddha's Words on Loving-Kindness. And this is a a copy of um, the uh, Thai forest monks, the Western Thai forest monks' uh, chanting sheet. And so the the dots and lines have to do with the chanting, which we can try later if we have time. But as you can see, very short sutta. It doesn't have any introduction. There are no characters showing up, no Molly of Agunas or Anarudas or anybody. But I just want to go through it and look at the different elements of the sutta. We can see that as we go through it, you'll see that it has several different sections that although they're not marked off, there's kind of distinctive different uh, elements to it. So the, the first section goes up to, if you see halfway down uh, the left side where wishing is underlined. So the first section goes up to there So this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, 
peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. So what strikes me about this opening in this of this teaching on loving kindness is that none of that mentions loving kindness or any other quality that we associate with loving kindness or compassion. It's much more what I would call falling under the realm of sila, of of morality or ethics or behavior, though there there are some other personal qualities, but it's really about laying the foundation. You know, one who is skilled in goodness is somebody who follows the precepts. Being able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, so another of the precepts, part of the Eightfold Path, right speech. Humble and not conceited, so not self-centered, right? So it's very much uh, in accord with the idea of letting go of, of self Contented and easily satisfied, so again, not not greedy, right? uh, not uh, grasping, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. So, uh, the, the term unburdened with duties can be very challenging for lay people when we kind of go, well, well, I've got a job and a family and I have to do these things. Well, when I've spent time around monastics, I see that they are also very busy much of the time. I mean, they, they have their retreats and their practice, but a lot of the time, you know, at the monasteries, they're doing building jobs and projects and they're teaching and they're writing books and they're all doing all kinds of things. So the point to me seems to me not, it doesn't say don't have duties. It says don't be burdened by them. And that, that I think, is a much more subtle, right, and, and a great challenge for each of us. Like, can I, how do I move through my work life? Is it something where I'm, you know, stressed out all the time, or can I be engaged but not be burdened by it? And I find, you know, again, the, the sutta really pre- pre- presents a variety of challenges, <laughs> quite a few. Uh, just straightforward and gentle in speech is enough of a challenge. Uh, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, obviously cultivating the qualities of of meditation, not proud and demanding in nature. So we're again seeing, you know, not conceited, not proud and demanding. So, you know, really seeing that uh, we're trying to cultivate this, these qualities of, uh, of being just, um, you know, as we say, a worker among workers, just, uh, not expecting uh, to be getting some special privileges and things. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. You know, it, it really creates an interesting challenge. And, and apparently, again, I get this from, I think, Bhikkhu Bodhi, who says, whenever the Buddha refers to the wise, he means him. <laughs> so don't do anything that the Buddha would not approve, right? And we have that expression, what would the Buddha, what would the Buddha do? I think it started with Jesus, but it's pretty much the same thing. They, they probably do similar things, I hope. Uh, but, but it's a great, you know, and this points to 
there's a teaching called the protections of the world. Uh, these two qualities, hiri and otapa, they're difficult to translate into English. The, the early translations made them sound very moralistic, but they're basically, uh, hiri is, the, is your conscience, and otapa is kind of your social, we could say social pressure, so that when we, when we take any action in the world, part of us is like noticing our, our own feeling about it, like, do I feel good about doing this? And part of us is like, how are people going to see me? How is this going to be viewed if I do this? So these are considered protections because we can see that those, those two inner and outer pressures help people to behave. Sometimes, you know, you need that, right? It's not enough to just, oh, I should do the right thing. It's like, well, I don't want anybody to find out that I did that, or I don't want to be, or, you know, the law, you know, I don't want to be arrested, or, uh, you know. So, so uh, don't do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove as kind of hiri and otapa. So I, I consider that to be the end of the first section because now you'll see that we switched and now we do go into loving kindness wishing. So presumably that means this is what should be done. That's the opening phrase, right? And that we should be wishing in gladness and in safety may all beings be at ease. So that that simple sentence encapsulates the typical loving kindness phrases. If you, the ones again that I've often used, and there are many variations, but may you be happy, may you be peaceful, may you be safe, gladness, <laughs> safety, and ease. That's the same things. So he's encouraging us to wish these things. And then he just gives a list of all the different people we should send, wish these things. Wishing in gladness and in safety may all beings be ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. So that wraps up what I consider the second section, because may all beings be at ease, is repeating the phrase above, right? So we see it, it's kind of like, you know, bookends of that section, which is just about wishing and gladness and safety may all beings be at ease. Now, there are different questions we could ask about what he means by the seen and the unseen. Does that mean just people that are across town that I can't see? Or does he mean beings in realms that I can't see. And if in the early Buddhist teachings in the Pali Canon, we find that there are a lot of beings living in different realms. So I think it's a reasonable guess to say that he's referring to all the different realms of existence. Those born and to be born, apparently, again, according to Bhikkhu Bodhi, refers to those who are in utero, not just like, you know, in 10 years, somebody might be born. Well, you could be, but 
apparently it just means like people that are those people who are alive and those who are in utero. Okay, now we go into this whole section that's really uh, well a short section, but this is this part is about non-ill will. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. So this is, you know, the heart of my argument about, uh, that shouldn't be an argument, I suppose, but the point that I'm trying to make about non-ill will. So the Buddha, he's, he's giving us both sides here. On the one hand, wish, you know, gladness and safety, may all beings be at ease. But also, you know, if you can't manage that, <laughs> just don't deceive anybody or despise anybody or let, you know, wish harm upon anybody. And then we come to what is, you know, one of the most famous lines and images in the whole Pali canon. And this is actually the, what I used for the, the musical version of the, of the Metta Sutta. I started with this line. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will. Again, interestingly, right, it starts, it's got this sort of poetic and beautiful image of radiating kindness, but at the end it's like free from hatred and ill will. Like you would think, well, if I'm radiating kindness over the entire world, how can there be any hatred and ill will? Have you watched your own mind? <laughs> it's a remarkable thing that we can be oh, loving all beings. But that asshole, you know, you know. So careful. Now, I will say that I've spent some time on this particular line. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, what that means? Because certainly, when I first encountered this line, I thought, oh, it's this just loving mother. Earth, like, you know, embracing the child. Beautiful, right? But there's also the realization that, first of all, it says, even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child. So she, he's saying that the... Uh, that being a mother isn't oh isn't he's not talking about affection necessarily i mean that's an, i think implied but also this fierceness right protecting your children that that loving kindness can have this fierce quality of protecting the those who are vulnerable so it 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 points to something else and and you know it's also you know, some of you, I, I suspect, are parents and know that your love for your child isn't always expressed by affection. Children can be very difficult. And it, there can be times when there's a lot of frustration or, or you can do things, you can ask things of them or make demands of them that they don't particularly like or want. But you realize that this is an expression of love. Disciplining a child wisely and skillfully is a gift. A, a child who is never disciplined 
very often, you know, becomes an adult who is not is undisciplined. And 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 so I mean, just you know, not to oversimplify it, but I hope you you get the point. I, I hope I'm not speaking that unskillfully, but the idea being that. You know, mother love isn't such a simple thing as just like rocking the baby. It's 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 layered, and and we can see that you know the 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 demand upon us, you know, not letting anger, ill will, you know, radiating kindness. This is not a practice for wimps. You know, this is again. This isn't just like oh, just feel good. Oh, may all beings be happy. It's like whoa. There's a lot of situations in life where you're going to be challenged, and and so when you think oh, okay, what would a mother do? What would the Buddha do? You know, you you realize there are many different nuances to this this practice. But I'll bring you back again just to how. The Buddha is is suggesting that we do this with a boundless heart, radiating kindness over the entire world. And you know when he says upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, especially the downwards to the depths, in the Buddhist tradition, there is this idea that there are hell realms, that there are beings who live in hell realms because of their very unskillful actions in previous lifetimes they have took rebirth in a hell realm and that we should send love to them now in modern psychology we we picture these more as mind states that that people live in hell realms of anger of uh, addiction of violence uh, of fear and so we can it, the, the idea to me being that we're we're trying to really encompass all the states, all the beings in the world. Some of them are living in heaven realms up in the skies, happy, joyous people, uh, you know, people who are peaceful and loving. And then there are people who are in hell realms, and we're radiating kindness to all of them, seen and unseen, weak or strong. So we now, um, uh, this little section in here, before we get to the last four or five lines, brings in uh, the practice of mindfulness, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down. Now, those are the four postures that the Buddha teaches mindfulness. And if you're familiar with the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, he he teaches to be mindful. So we're we're not supposed to just practice loving kindness as meditation. We're supposed to practice it when we're walking, standing, seated, or lying down. And free from drowsiness (laughs) Uh, can be difficult. But uh, again, we're talking about one of the hindrances. So the sutta actually addresses many of the hindrances. There's addresses uh, grasping or desire when it says to be contented and easily satisfied, uh, frugal, peaceful. Uh, It addresses, uh, obviously, aversion, anger, and addresses uh, sleepiness then. And, and we can say restlessness when it talks about peaceful. 
Uh, okay. And so one should sustain this recollection. The word recollection is a translation of the word sati, which is the same, which is the word we translate ordinarily as mindfulness. So we could say one should sustain this mindfulness. So my argument, again, my, my point that loving kindness is not necessarily separate from mindfulness is affirmed here in the sutta itself. So you should maintain mindfulness of your loving kindness. This is said to be the sublime abiding. <laughs> it's interesting. Uh, I'm not sure that this is, uh, it translates exactly how the Buddhists would have said it. But because it's it's sort of odd to think. It's like the Buddha is saying, I heard somebody called this. <laughs> this is said to be the sublime abiding. It's like, who, who, who said that before you? <laughs> Um, so now we go into a real shift and this last, these last four lines are about enlightenment really and about then how loving kindness practice can bring us to an advanced stage of awakening if you will by not holding to fixed views the pure hearted one having clarity of vision being freed from all sense desires is not born again into this world and I think Again, for someone not familiar too much with particularly Theravadan Buddhist teachings, you might wonder why the discourse on loving kindness ends with the line, is not born again into this world. What does that have to do with with loving kindness? So I'm going to go back to by not holding to fixed views. So these several lines here are really referring to the things <coughs> that get in the way of enlightenment and uh, and allow for enlightenment. Views and opinions are one of the things that obstruct us from, from seeing clearly because we have these views and opinions that we are like, uh, you know, a sheet in front of us. They're like a something obscuring us from what's really true. And to see the truth, we have to step away from our own conditioned beliefs and opinions and look afresh and anew at the world by not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one. I think that speaks pretty clearly to what we're talking about, someone who is filled with with love and, and not polluted having clarity of vision. So the image of vision is, is very common in Buddhist teachings. The, the, the center is called the insight meditation center, right? sight, seeing inwardly. Uh, the, we read earlier where the Buddha talked about knowledge and vision of the way things are or of the truth. So the, this, the idea of vision as a... Uh, a metaphor for spiritual awakening is is very common, which is common in our own language as well. Being freed from all sense desires, uh, this is said to be only at the highest stages of enlightenment. There are said to be four stages. And and according to Bhikkhu Bodhi, this kind of captures the three of the four stages. I I can't quite uh, explain that. We'll have to go back to Bhikkhu Bodhi. (laughs) <laughs> but uh, we can see that, wow, like this practice that just starts out with 
you know, being able and upright and straightforward and gentle in speech, winds up saying, and then you're going to be free of all sense desires. Well, it's pretty unimaginable for most of us to not have sense desires. Uh, and there can be a lot that that kind of stirs up. Well, wait a minute, what does that mean? How can I, how, does that mean I'd stop eating or breathing? It's not quite what it's getting at. It's really talking about the impulses and, and cravings that cause suffering. And so the final line said, once all this happens, then this, this pure-hearted one with clarity of vision is freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. So this is referring specifically to rebirth, right? Reincarnation as, an, as in another lifetime. And, and the, the idea in Theravada Buddhism is that in this cycle of samsara, each time we take birth, we are face the suffering of birth, of aging, and of death. And that each lifetime is ultimately unsatisfying. And one way to put it, the simple way to put it is, it always ends badly. And so the Buddha is like, well, you know, we have this feeling like, I'm going to get it. Like, life is good, right? And, and once I get everything I want, and I solve everything and figure it all out, then I'm just going to really be happy, and I won't have any more problems, and it's great. And he's like, no, it doesn't happen. You have moments of joy and pleasure and, and release, and they pass. And then there is dukkha, and then you're, you get sick, you die, you know, there's suffering and death. It's, he's not saying like, oh, life is just miserable. He's just saying it's not satisfying. There is no moment of complete satisfaction, but that our minds have this idea that it's out there somewhere. Right? It's like a very ingrained quality we all have, I think. And that we keep the reason, according to this principle, the reason that we keep being reborn is that we keep thinking, I'll get it next time. You know? oh, it's worth it. It's right there. Uh, I didn't quite get it this time, but next time I'll have it figured out. You know, and, the, and according to, again, this tradition, in the, the early Buddhist tradition, the when once you really have clarity, once you see the truth fully and you let go completely, there is no more impulse to go through it again. And you just let go and you're not born again. Now that's, <laughs> I present that just as, you know, what we can understand about what the Buddha taught, whether that's, meant to be taken literally or whether it is actually true I cannot answer there's a logic to it that I appreciate and it can also be helpful to step back from this you know more mythic view we could call it or you know coming out of a very different culture and historical and you know um, uh, uh, moment in human consciousness 
is to say, and this is the way many modern Buddhists speak of this, being born again can be talked about as a moment-by-moment experience. And, and this is also a credible way of understanding what the Buddha is talking about, that we can think of it as ego being born. Every time we create or attach to a sense of self, or that we create a self, that that is being a, a rebirth. And that every time we let go of that, we're not being born again. And so that in, in practical terms that we can realize here and now in our, in our lifetime, in our meditation or outside of our meditation, if we can start to let go moment by moment to that grasping of self, we find that our lives become much more comfortable. There is much less suffering. And again, I would point to the the billionaires and the narcissists and the those who are inflating their egos and see that how much suffering there is. The particular, you know, having been a, a professional musician at one time and having strived for fame and success, I'm incredibly grateful that that never happened for me because I can see that what happens to most people in that lifestyle is that there is a rise and then there's a moment of a peak and then there is a diminution of that fame and that what happens then as you go down there's a constant clawing to get back up and that it's a terrible it looks like real suffering to me when you see a band that was famous 30 years ago, go out on their reunion tour, and half of them are dead, so they have replacement people, and their whole crowd is trying to relive their own moments of when they were 17, and you're trying to, and you're now not a young person up on stage and you're creaking around with your guitar, and you, you're half deaf, so you have to wear you know, earplugs and you're and you're playing the song that you've played 7,000 times that you're so sick of, it just looks like dukkha to me, you know. So it's not born again, not being born again into this world. Uh, and I, I guess as I say that, I can't help but notice that it's also a phrase that's used in a different religious tradition to to refer to the, the a spiritual awakening. So, uh, but we can be born. The Buddha talks about being born into the Dharma. So, so uh, you know, we're not born into a self. We want to be born into the Dharma. Uh, there's a one one character in the suttas uh, who's referred to as Magara's mother. And I was like, why do they just refer to her as Megara's mother? And then I tracked it down. It turned out that this woman, I think her name is, it's kind of like Vedahika, it's Viveka or something like that. She was not Megara's mother, literally. She was Megara's daughter-in-law, 
and introduced Megara to the Dharma. And because she introduced him to the Dharma, it was like she was his mother. She gave birth to him into the Dharma. So she's referred to as Megara's mother. It was at her, uh, her monastery in Savati where the Buddha gave the Anapanasati Sutta, but that's for another day. <laughs> so uh, it's been a lot. I hope it hasn't been too much for you today. I hope you, that you'll take this as um, inspiration to explore for yourself, to practice for yourself, to continue your practice. And, and maybe we can close with uh, chanting the sutta. So uh, I, I will chant and chant along as, you, as best you can. There, there are just three notes. There's the main note, and then depending on the dot, you either go down a note, well, it's a whole step, but, but, or you go up a note. Okay, so, there's, so just if you see the dot, just go down if, uh, up, up below. If you see a dot above, go up. And, the, and when there's a line underneath it, it means it's supposed to be held a little longer, but uh, I'm not perfect at this, so you can sort of mumble along. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety. May all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be. Whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another, even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding by not holding to fixed views. The pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision,
being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. So, thank you all for coming. Thank you, everyone online. Thank you, Marianne, for your support. Rob, thank you. Um, I did, I did not mention often, I mentioned at the beginning, I brought some of my books. For, they are not for sale. They are offered for Donna. So take one, leave what you can or wish to. Um, actually, I just left information about, I didn't even put an uh, envelope over there. I don't, I have one somewhere, but um, you can, I just have electronic ways to pay them. So um, in any case, I hope you will check them out. And of course, the, one of them is the Living Kindness book. So thank you all. Uh, my website is kevingriffin.net. I do Zoom classes a couple times a week on there. You're welcome to join those anytime. And I hope to see you again. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you.